we're moving forward in our We Believe series, which began several months ago. This is a series that is designed to give us what we would call, or at least what was called, a catechism. Essentially meaning there are definitely things in the Christian faith that we believe, and what we believe we discussed shapes our practice. In other words, our beliefs about God, our beliefs about Jesus should really shape and reshape every element of our life for the days that we follow Him, every aspect of our life. And so this is not just a series addressing theology, although it is. It's a series addressing how theology is meant to shape who we are, what we do, and the very way we see the world. For example, uh, a great example of this would be the, the, the holiday of Christmas. For some people, Christmas is a great time for family to get together and to exchange gifts, and that's a beautiful thing. But when you impute the theology of what Christmas means, it drastically changes the nature of Christmas. We get to embrace being with family and, and sharing gifts, but we also are called to a little bit of a different standard in the sense that the very hope we sing about and celebrate, the nostalgia that this season can bring to our hearts, for some of us, the pain and the trial that it does. Remember, these holidays always evoke two types of emotions. One is very warm, the other one can be very painful, as folks are reminded what they are without this season. It's in both of these arenas that the true meaning, the message of Christmas, really has its chance to take root. And the argument that I want to lay before you today, the teaching I want to lay before you today, revolves around how we pray. We started talking about this last week, and we'll spend the rest of this month doing so. Our prayer life is a crucial part of the way we can not only serve God, but advance His causes in the world, and certainly help the hope in the light of Jesus that we sing about in a room like this, to invade every element and every area of our city, our workplaces, our schools, wherever we go. And so last week, we, in a very pointed way, began talking about prayer, what we believe about it. And the verses we're looking at today are the same verses we've been looking at. We'll kind of look at them for a few weeks. They're in a section of Scripture in Ephesians known as putting on the armor of God. And in them, Paul uses this example of how a soldier putting on their armor is both a defensive and an offensive act. And so when Paul wrote this, remember, historically speaking, he's living in a world that is ruled by Rome and the Roman army. And it's very well known that a Roman soldier has essentially one purpose in the world. He is to advance the causes of Rome. That's why soldiers existed for the Roman army. And these, these Romans, they wore armor not only to defend themselves, that was a significant part of what it meant, but this was also a tool provided to the army to move forward. In other words, it protected them from the attack of the enemy, but it also gave them a tool to advance the causes and the influence of Rome in the world. And so there's this interesting sort of spiritual metaphor that Paul gives us here. He's instructing us to see the teachings of this passage in a very similar way to the way a Roman soldier would have understand the importance, understood excuse me, the importance of his, his battle array. In this section of Ephesians, Paul instructs us to do things like read the Bible, to rest in Jesus' righteousness, to dwell on Christ's truth. And he closes this whole section with this statement that we're looking at. All of these beautiful truths we're called to dwell in and to receive, the truths that the Advent table communicate to us, the very coming of Christ. We have this discussion this morning because Jesus has fulfilled everything we're talking about. All of the things that Paul instructs us to do, we are capable of doing them because the power of Jesus Christ and the presence of His Holy Spirit is in the world and in us for those of us that follow Christ. And so there's this interesting end. He drives this point home that we are to be a people who pray. And the way that I like to say this is we pray without ceasing. We pray not just for our own needs, but also for the Lord's people and that God's gospel of peace would go into the world. That the mystery of the gospel, the, the fact that there are still people in our world who maybe have even heard the words of what the gospel mean, but they've yet to recognize the beauty and the truth of it in their hearts. We are in part put on this earth to demystify that for them through word and deed to be the, the light in the life of Jesus Christ. And so we discussed 
how God's people have been set apart to advance the causes and the influence of Jesus' kingdom on earth. That's what we are here to do. And we do this by spreading the good news through word and deed. We are words of encouragement and hope to people, and we certainly, through our hands, our time, our efforts, our resources, the whole of who we are, our money, our time, everything, God desires that we see these things as tools we use to help people know and grow in Christ. And this is an act, this command finds its root in the very manger that we, with increasing exuberance, celebrate each week. God sends His Son to the earth to accomplish not just the same thing, but He accomplishes this first for us. It's important to note that the very nature of what we celebrate at Christmas is the root reality of this command. To take the gospel into the world, we have to have a Savior and a gospel to speak about. And because of Christ's coming, we have both of those things. So there's a lot of responsibility laid out in this passage for us. But what's interesting is connected to all that responsibility, all the stuff Paul is challenging us to do, there's this important note that these awesome responsibilities that God invites us to be a part of, they cannot be accomplished without our fervent and faithful prayer. It is incredibly and entirely possible to sort of go through the motions of Christianity, to work through the commands of Christianity, to follow the morality and the spirituality of Christianity. We can do some of these things, but when disconnected from the authority and the power of how these things actually become and do what they're meant to do, we, we cannot do this without prayer. We cannot essentially build God's kingdom without the presence of the king. And one of the ways, one of the most important ways that we invite the presence of the king into our lives is by being a people who pray. And so the reason this is so important to understand is because I said this last week and I'm going to say this every week until we're done with this little section. Our prayer life is an indicator. It's sort of like a fuel gauge. It indicates something very critical about who we are or are not in Jesus. It's a deep indicator of what our relational intimacy with God looks like. So a person who prays regularly and in a way that honors God is very likely to be a person who recognizes their need for God, to call out to God, to commune with God, to be in relationship with Him, to share the ups and the downs, the highs and the lows, to consult Him and seek His guidance and His wisdom. To approach God like this signifies a life that is connected to God and equally as important, it's a life that truly enjoys being in the presence of God. That's what prayer signifies. It's one of the things it signifies anyways. And so while a person who does not pray, another side of the fence, maybe ideally this is what we're doing, but there are also people who do not pray. And if we're the type of person who, who doesn't pray, that also can reveal something about our heart. And I would say it reveals something that is somewhat antithetical to what we've just discussed. It shows that there is a, maybe there's no need for God in our life. We can stumble through or walk through life without consulting God through the high and the low, without consulting God for guidance and wisdom. We can make decisions in all areas of our lives without the truth of His Word or the direction of His voice. It signifies a person who has no need for God. Or there's a third type of way that people pray. It's the way of utilitarian prayer, which simply means this is a person who prays only when they want or need something. They're in crisis mode or they have a desire and they go to God only in the, the sensational moments of life. This can also reveal or indicate something deeply about who we are in Jesus. It can often reveal that this person's heart is more in love with what they think God can give them rather than actually being in love with God himself. It's sort of like, I'll just use a Christmas analogy here, it would sort of be like somebody you really care about or somebody that, that you really value in life them feeling like you only go to them to get something from them. You don't actually care to be in their presence. The nature of a gift is somewhat invalidated at that point. I mean, we probably would not feel as, 
as gracious or have as much gratitude about a gift if we felt like we were giving it only because of this utility. That, it, that if the gift was dissolved or removed, the person in front of us would not at all want to be in our lives. That's not what we would call good gift giving. And a prayer life that reflects this can certainly show a desire to get from God without actually, f with forgetting really the most important blessing we get from God. And that is the presence of God himself. Christ comes to earth to restore that for us. And so the, the truth with these things, the challenges with these ideas, is that to go to God with these sort of low bar prayer philosophies or prayer styles, actually, it, it frankly impedes God a little bit. I don't want to say that we have the authority to stop God, but I do want to say when we go to God sort of desiring a whole lot less than what He wants to do in our lives, it is very likely that this is a place where God will not move. What I want to say here is it's really a small way of praying. The reality of what prayer provides us the opportunity to do is sort of just demeaned by approaching God in these ways. So what does it mean to be the type of people who have a prayer life that's somewhat large? A prayer life that is actually rooted in the kingdom, that recognizes our own needs, but certainly doesn't exclude the needs of our world, our nations, or the reality that God has called us to bless the very neighbors that live on our street, work in the cubicles next to us, to sit at the desks at our schools. What does it mean to be the type of people who pray large, pray big? Today we're going to continue our conversation about prayer. And I only want to talk to you about one thing. It leads me to the next We Believe Truth in our series. I hope you know right now that I don't think we should pray small. And we believe that we should be a people who pray, ask, and believe that Jesus really wants to do big things in our lives. That's the nature of what is being said in Ephesians 6. And any other place you read about prayer, we'll talk about a few of them in our text this morning. Wherever there is prayer, there is an incredibly grand thing God is asking us to do. And it is to bring about His kingdom in the world. I want to reread the key area we're going to talk about this morning. Ephesians 6, 18 through 20. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions, with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. The idea here is prayer that never ceases, for all things, at all times, in every area of life. And then Paul asks us to pray for him, or at least the, the people in Ephesus. Pray also for me that whenever I speak, words may be given so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. What a tool, what a template for us to understand one of the key ways or one of the key elements that needs to be in a prayer. And so in verse 19, Paul's prayer request reminds us that our prayers are one of the main ways God intends to share His hope with the world. He's not just praying for things here for Himself. He's asking to be prayed for, but there's this incredibly profound thing He prays for. He asks that we be the people that recognize our prayer is one of the things that fuels the kingdom of God. The way we go to God and ask for these things to be brought about through our lives, it's one of the ways that God actually brings about His goodness and His grace in the world. This is literally what Paul says in verse 19 through 20. In a very particular and powerful way, he prays that God would do something very large in his life, that God would make him fearless to proclaim the hope of the gospel, and that God would give him this, this immeasurable clarity in his words so that he could make Jesus known to the people he was sharing him with. He not only prays for the gospel to go forward, but he actually prays that God would use him in a pretty profound way. That he would guide his mind, his hands, his feet, the very words that come off of his tongue, the ways that he served people, that God would manifest himself on all of these things and use it as an opportune, opportunity to demystify the gospel, to make the gospel very clear in the lives of the people that he's speaking to. And this is clearly the most pressing prayer request on Paul's heart in this passage. And it shows us something about him and can stand in sharp contrast to the prayer life of what a lot of modern prayer looks like. 
For some of us in the modern world, we reduce prayer to things far less than what we read about here. For some of us, prayer can be rooted in the logistical side of life. I mentioned this a moment ago, but I want to sort of clarify what I mean here. We pray for or ask for people to pray for us about our health or our jobs or better stability in life, healthy relationships, peace in our hearts, direction for our careers. That list of, of legitimate need in our life can be very long. And I want to make a, or issue a caveat here. I want you to hear me when I speak about this. All of these requests are good and right. Don't hear me saying that we should not be praying for our own needs. These are absolutely things that God wants us to bring to him, not just to him, but to each other. One of the reasons we place such a high value on Christian community at our church about the need to be in a community group to live these truths out, to flesh them out with other men and women who are following Jesus in the very same way you are trying to is because we have to have support in these areas. We have to know God is in control of these things, that we can approach God in these areas, and that in a lot of ways, some of the things we pray for, they might be met through the needs, through the, uh, the, the faithfulness of other people, men and women that love Jesus. And so it is absolutely important that we know God desires us to pray about this stuff. He wants us to bring this stuff to Him. When Paul says in Ephesians, pray for all things on all occasions, what he's saying is this too. This is included in that all thing on all occasions idea. So what this means is there isn't a single area of our lives that God does not want us to bring to Him. When you really care about somebody, when they care about you, you share the most meaningful and intimate areas of life with them. The same is true with our relationship with Jesus. He wants us to bring it all to Him. He's already aware of it all, but He desires that we bring this to Him so that we can more deeply experience His presence. Very important that we pray for our needs. That said, if we're only praying for our own life, if we're only praying for our needs, it can really reveal a grave deficiency in how we understand the role of prayer in our lives, what prayer is given to us for. And I'll give you an example of this. So I'm just shy of pastoring uh, the church now for 20 years. Not this church, eight years here, but 20 cumulatively. And I've attended a lot of prayer meetings, uh, formal in buildings, in weird spaces and movie theaters like this. All around, I've seen, you know, in different expressions, I have been engaged in prayer meetings. And I would take a bet that if you have been a Christian for some time and faithful to be a part of a church community that's following Christ, you have likely also sat, sat in some prayer meeting, whether that's personal at a coffee table, in community groups, in a large group environment, where it is, we've likely had some experience with prayer meetings. What's interesting about prayer meetings is that it's rare. I'm not saying it doesn't happen, but I'm saying it's pretty rare at those meetings to hear a prayer request like the one Paul gives us here. Oftentimes, we bring up our needs at those meetings, and we should. I just made the point for why. But I also want to sort of up the ante here and say that it's important that we don't just do that. It's pretty rare in a meeting like that to hear a person get up and say, uh, you know what, I'd like to ask all of you to pray for me, that I can fearlessly proclaim Jesus Christ, not just to my world, but to my workplace, that I can be sensitive to the opportunities God provides me in every area of my life to really be Jesus for somebody. Pray for me because I, I really, this day, want to be more deeply chained to the work of the gospel of Christ. That I would, you know, maybe even be okay with him introducing some challenges in my life or some suffering for the sake of the gospel. Pray for me that, that as I'm going about the work of the kingdom of God, he would give me such a clarity of speech and thought that I would be able to share my faith, to share the grace of Jesus through, with people through word and deed in such a way that God leads people to his grace because of it. These are not common prayer requests although it is a very common command in the New Testament. On the contrary, for a lot of people, prayer becomes need-based in nature. And praying this way, just for needs, can really be an evidence of an imbalanced prayer life. Now that's a pretty bold statement, 
How do we know this? Well, we know this not just because I'm saying it. We know this because just about every model, every template for prayer in the New Testament is giving us this, this template, this idea that prayer is not only for us, it is for us to understand our larger role in the kingdom of God. The best place we see this is in the Lord's Prayer or the model prayer. And while we're not going to read this today, I want to sort of summarize what Jesus is saying in that passage. Matthew chapter 6, verse 9 through 13, is one of the clearest instructions in the Bible on what a healthy prayer looks like, what a healthy prayer life looks like. There Jesus says, we are absolutely to approach God and ask Him to provide our needs, every single one of them. We're praying for things like our daily bread. We're sort of recognizing that the very health and the nature of our bodies, our ability to produce and, and earn income and provide for ourselves and other people, that we want to know God is in control of those things. And we are to bring those things to Him, every single one of those areas of life. But what's interesting about that is that for a lot of us, this is where we end prayer. We ended at the need. The Lord's Prayer, or even a prayer like this in Ephesians, teaches us that praying for our needs is not an end in and of itself. It's actually the beginning of a much greater perspective in our lives. Jesus' prayer also communicates to us that the main reason God provides our needs is so that we can be actively engaged in bringing about His kingdom and will on the earth. We're not just made alive and sustained to live for ourselves. For those of us who have chosen to follow Jesus, we are we are given these blessings, these benefits, these, these needs we have in life so that we can, in more meaningful ways, serve the kingdom of God for the time that we have on this earth. And so Jesus' model prayer teaches us that God wants us to depend on Him. He wants us to know that our needs are provided by Him. Not so that we can just have our needs met, but so that we can become more deeply devoted ambassadors of the gospel of Jesus. In other words, we're sustained to serve. He wants to sustain us. Not only to live, but to use our lives as a platform to share His truth and grace in the world, wherever that leads us, wherever God leads us. And so one of the main ideas Jesus communicates to us, and Paul is clearly living out in his life, is that praying for needs apart from the work of God's gospel will likely cause you and I to miss out on the great adventure of Christianity. We will go to God with a very low expectation in prayer when God has a much higher expectation and a much higher vision for our life. Clearly, Paul's prayer request here is an evidence that he is aware of this. The teachings of Jesus have shaped him deeply. Not only this one, but I want to sort of layer another one on this. Another prayer promise in the Gospel of John. You know, we looked at some verses a few weeks ago, about a month ago in John 20, after Jesus' resurrection, and how fear was keeping the disciples from actually obliging the command he gave them. And they make this decision to trust Jesus and lay down their fear. And through that, they change the world to the power of God. It's interesting, if you rewind this, this teaching to John 14, there's another sec a section of Scripture where we see the disciples are dealing with fear. They're laden with fear as they try to follow Christ. And this can be true for us today. In John 14, there's another promise that Jesus gives us pre-resurrection. And this is interesting when you think about the context in which Jesus is teaching this. He's talking to a group of disciples in the upper room. He's essentially laying out the fact that he's about to go to the cross. And the disciples, in a very embryonic way, they start to realize that their time with Jesus is limited. He's about to be taken by his own will, obviously. Very important to say that. No one lays down, the, the, the son does not lay down his life until he decides to lay down his life. So he permits the powers of man to take him. And the disciples here are very afraid. And it's very likely, let's get into the human shoes for a moment here, how they were thinking. It's very likely that they were starting to think all of their laboring for Jesus, all of their effort for Jesus, all of their praying 
for Jesus. And what he had asked them to bring about in this world was likely going to be done in vain. Because they're following this guy, this, this relatively unknown person at this point in history, in the first century, who's promising them God is going to do something very incredible in their lives. They had a very strong, I, I believe deeply, they were probably wondering how God was going to fulfill all of these things he said he was going to do through Christ. How was he going to bring about this movement called Christianity when the very leader of it was about to be taken from them? Naturally, the disciples were afraid. And so they looked to Jesus and they want to know how does he intend to keep this thing going without him? How does he intend to make good on the promise that he's going to fulfill everything he said that he was going to do, that he's going to do amazing and grand things in their lives when he's about to leave them and put, be put on the cross? And what's interesting is that Jesus doesn't answer this. He, he answers this in a very human way. He answers this question by reminding them of their life's purpose and significance in God's eyes. In other words, they were thinking too low at this point in their, their lives. They were wondering how this was going to work, and their fear began to trump their faith. This is a significant thing that Jesus does in John 14, and it's something that Paul literally prays for us to understand in Ephesians. In that upper room, Jesus tells the disciples, listen, my time has come. i got to go home. i got to go be with my Father again. The time has come for me to go to the cross, accomplish salvation, and then after my death and resurrection, I'm going back to heaven. And I'm going to sit there and rule as Lord and King until my second return, my second advent. We celebrate, we remember the first advent today, but we expect the second advent. Everything that has happened, Jesus' birth to his death and resurrection, has put us in this position of anxiously awaiting his return. And this is an interesting place for us to be. The modern church, the New Testament church, is sitting between two advents. He's come, and we wait for him to come. And in between these two bookends is a major responsibility, rooted in prayer, at least something we should be praying for. It's sort of like Jesus is saying, while I'm gone, I intend to continue my good work in the world through you. The disciples heard this from him. I intend to do great things in the world after I leave. I intend to bless the world after I leave. I intend to do all of this through, through my followers. While I am not going to be here anymore physically, I need you to know that I'm going to be with you all. I'm going to be in your hearts and in your lives. And it is through my followers, you and I, the disciples in that room, Paul and Ephesus, it is through us that God intends to continue to bless the world. There isn't going to be another manger. But in our lives, we actually can be the manger of Jesus every day. We can explain and clarify through word and deed the significance of the birth of Jesus. We can retell that story to the people that need to hear it. We can have people retell it to our hearts when we need to hear it. This is truly amazing when you think about it. Until Jesus' return, he has set us apart to be, Paul's literal words, his ambassadors. We represent the king and his kingdom. And what this means is that for the Christian, for you and I following Jesus, wherever we go, whether we like it or not, the light and life of Jesus also goes with us. And so Jesus' words and prayer give us a clear insight into what God wanting to do big things in our lives actually means. What does it mean to say God wants to use me? God wants to be a part of my life. God has a purpose for me. These are big statements. What does it mean for God to actually fulfill this in our life? Well, I want to share with you something. I want to say that contrary to popular belief, the way God usually works through us and in us is in very unexpected ways, not necessarily sensational ways. I'm not saying God cannot do sensational things in our lives, and you've heard me say this before in this room, the very fact that God is with us and in our lives is sensational in and of itself. But I think sometimes we get to a place where we think that unless we're being used in a way that maybe reflects the miraculous nature of some of the things that God has done in the Scripture, that God is actually not present in our life. When we think of the way that God used Jesus in the Scripture, we usually think of the big stuff. We think of the miracles. 
However, even this, this is a miracle in and of itself, right? His coming is, is a supernatural reality. There's something very significant about this. It's only happened once. What's interesting about all of the sensational ways that God has worked through Christ and even some of the men and women in the Bible, but particularly Jesus, is that these sensations were just snapshots of what Jesus did. And according to Jesus, his miracles in particular had a much more significant purpose than just being miracles. They were not the end game of his ministry. And if we begin to see them as such, it can be kind of dangerous. <clears throat> the aim of everything Jesus did was to lead people to a genuine faith in God. Every word, every deed, every miracle, everything that he did was in some way a directional signal meant to help people see their need for God. And so while it's true Jesus performed some amazing miracles on earth, he spent the majority of his life ministering to people just like you and I did. He spent the majority of his life doing what you and I are going to do when we walk out of this room. You and I will not be born in a manger today. We will not part a sea of reeds. We will likely not resurrect ourselves after a bad lunch at Five Guys. That's not going to happen. Jesus did those things, but I would submit to you that it's the in-between of those things where the heart of Christianity is found. We can minister like Jesus did when we follow the way that he ministered. Pardon me for a moment. That was awkward, I'm sorry, but I'm not embarrassed by it, just so you know, I'm pretty confident. Here we go. <clears throat> so think about this. Let's move away from the sensational to the normal for a moment. Look at what Jesus does. Wherever he went and showed, he showed people empathy and compassion to those who were hurting. The broken hold a very special place in his heart and are often compelled to act on his behalf. Or that he acts on their behalf. He's always an advocate for those who are in need. He is God's perfect justice. Where there are wrongs, he writes them. Where there is a lack of law, he, re he reveals the perfect law of God. He unashamedly proclaims and invites people to experience God's love through his grace. He offers kind words to the discouraged, harsh rebukes, when he encounters those hurting people, for example, the legalistic culture of the Pharisees, these are seemingly non-miraculous deeds. But I want to say that these are where the real nugget of what Paul is praying for in this teaching can be found. When it comes to what you pray and believe in your, your role in advancing God's causes in the world are, it is important to know that knowing the normal way Jesus worked is actually something very important to us. And here's why knowing this matters. Some of us think that God is only working in our lives or answering our prayers <clears throat> when he's doing things we deem as spectacular. So from God's perspective, this could not be any further than the truth. Thinking God works this way only through the sensational will cause us to miss out on how God is actually working in our lives. The bottom line here is sometimes we demand to see God do what we, be what we believe are amazing things in our lives as an evidence of his presence in our lives. And when he doesn't come through, many of us give up on prayer and sometimes on God altogether. That's one of the most common reasons I have heard people state. And being frank, I'm just like you. Meaning there are times when I go to God with things and I don't think he's working the way that he should. It's very easy to lose hope in those moments. It's very easy when we begin to expect or demand a response from God that is not a response that God wants to, to bring about in the world. Or maybe with the best of intentions, what we think he should be doing is actually not what he needs to be doing. It's when we demand our own personal versions of him, like parting the Red Sea or walking on water. It's when, when we say, listen, I got big challenges in life, and I heard in a podcast and read in the Bible that we serve a big God, so I should expect big responses. Yes, you should, but they should be tempered with the way God desires to work. It's when we demand what the Bible deems the miraculous to be the normative way that God works in our lives. And this attitude is fostered in large part because we live in a culture that is consumed by the bigger is better philosophy. But our faith is very big, but not necessarily always big in this way. 
Our faith is a slow faith. Our faith is a faith where God is long-suffering and patient and kind. And I'm not saying he doesn't use the sensational because he has, but the sensational has seldom been the way that God has chosen to work in the world or to answer our prayers. They're peaks of his story, but not the normal. So look at the humble origins and life of Jesus himself. We celebrate a modern sort of symbolism of Advent, but the reality is that Jesus is born a Jewish peasant in a manger, and he dies a, a, a false criminal, but nonetheless he's condemned as a criminal on the cross. He is referred to as the king without a crown, and the man who had no place to lay his head. Historically speaking, people and God have always had a difference of opinion when it comes to how God is working in their lives or how God should be answering their prayers. And this is true in Jesus' day too. Thousands of people show up to watch his miracles, a handful of them. Twelve stay to become his disciples, and one attempts to kill him. Jesus himself has told us his miracles, or his signs, as he called them, were never meant to be an end of themselves. They were meant to point to the greatest miracle, the fact that we could have this amazing relationship with God through Christ. And that is the point that I'm trying to make here. The last thing I want to say to you this morning, as you pray for God to do big things in your life, and I encourage you to do that, you have to know that your life itself is the way God has chosen to do His greatest works in the world. It is you. The way God is working in the world now is through you and I. And have you ever thought about this? Think about all the miracles in the New Testament. Raising Lazarus from the dead, wine to water, uh, uh, excuse me, water to wine. That would have been a faux miracle if it went the other way. Feeding the 5,000, all of these things. Jesus says the greatest miracle he wants to use to lead somebody to God today, the greatest way he wants to reveal the kingdom, to make the mystery of the gospel known is through your life and mine. It's through our words and deeds, your faithful desire to be an ambassador for Jesus. And this is for good reason. Don't ever let the nature of your redeemed life, this is an important statement, your redeemed life is an evidence of the greatest miracle in history, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's why one of the most celebrated and cherished works of God is when we pray and commit to help others find faith in Jesus by making this commitment to not only be a disciple, but to be a disciple who makes disciples, to be a person who cares about spreading the good news and the peace of Jesus Christ in our world. And so as we close this morning, this second teaching on prayer, I hope you intend to pray and ask God to give you a kingdom mindset when you pray. If you've been rocking in those comfy theater chairs for a while, maybe it's time to reconnect your passions and your abilities to Jesus and the work of our church and the mission of Jesus on a deeper level. I promise you, if you have an ability or a gift or even just a desire to serve, we can connect you to something that will help you live in a way that honors these commands we read about in this passage of Scripture. God truly wants to do big things in your life and in your spheres of influence. When it comes to what you've heard about adopting a prayer life focused on advancing God's kingdom, ask yourself, what is Jesus saying to you? And what is it that you will do about it as you leave this room today?